the student perception is not only on the design of the course, but it really is the delivery of the course as well. Is the instructor thoughtfully responding in a timely manner and providing meaningful feedback so that the students can succeed? You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Well, here we are. At the time of this recording, COVID-19 continues to spread nearly unabated, at least here in the U.S., and significant portions of society are forced to work, teach, and learn from home. Even now, as I record this, my son sits across the room attending kindergarten through a Chromebook. And if you are listening to this podcast, then you are likely involved in online distance education in some form or fashion, whether you like it or not. As Zoom continues to swiftly usurp the traditional brick and mortar, our institutes of higher education are stressed with increasing external pressure for greater accountability to provide the quality education that they promised their students and other stakeholders before the term social distancing became incorporated into our collective cognitive schema. Therefore, perhaps now more than ever, it is pertinent to consider the very definition of quality in online distance education. After all, the very reputation of many institutions and their programs hangs in the balance. A reputation that is now largely informed by the perceptions of quality of their online educational offerings. In the 1993 article defining quality, authors Lee Harvey, not that Lee Harvey, and Diana Green define quality in higher education as multifaceted and, quote, determining criteria for assessing quality in higher education requires an understanding of different conceptions of quality that inform the preferences of stakeholders. Quality is described as a relative concept that can run the gamut between a flawless hypothetical and a fixed absolute. That is to say, at one end of the spectrum, quality is an ideal that is instantly recognized internally, even though it might be hard to define verbally. On the other extreme, Quality is an absolute title that is granted to a product or institution once an established set of benchmarks are met. Our goal for this episode is to shed light on this nebulous topic. So, join us as we discuss the various perceptions of quality for online distance teaching and learning in higher education. Also, stick around for our Hot topic segment, where we read fan tweets. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Aaron Kraft from ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Kutraitiwa, Jeanette Senegal, and we have a special guest. Hello, my name is Jessica Cole. I'm with ASU Online at Ed Plus, part of Arizona State University. Very cool. And you are there as an instructional designer? Yes, I am. Well, let's go ahead and just dive on into the dimensions of quality and online distance education for higher ed. I want to start by looking at quality from an administrative perspective. Does anybody have experience, direct or otherwise, with the administrative thoughts and processes concerning uh, quality in higher education? Well, as soon as we started talking about this topic and kind of understanding the, the direction this is taking and this need to look at it from different perspectives. When I thought about administrative or even institutional, immediately my mind went to the quality framework that's uh, produced by the Online Learning Consortium or OLC. And it's really, I think the first exposure I had to this bigger picture of what it meant to develop and uh, 
be mindful end-to-end, if you will, of online programming that they have these five pillars, right? So they include um, recommendations and metrics around learning effectiveness, the ability to scale online education, how to think about access for all kinds of students in all kinds of places, and then very importantly, both faculty satisfaction as well as student satisfaction. So would you say this is a largely output-driven perspective on quality? I think it's a lovely way for institutions to build their own rubric around what it means to uh, think about and set benchmarks for quality. It's not prescriptive, but giving these pillars um, provides a framework for institutions to define what it is that they think they need to do about quality. And maybe, you know, they have a sixth pillar. Maybe uh, one is not quite as relevant to them as another. Maybe they're not scaling up or down as much as other institutions might be, for example. Um, But it definitely gives a strong starting place, I think, to uh, administratively consider what are the elements of good or quality distance education. Now, there are external considerations as well, especially if you are in upper administration uh, at a university or college. I'm thinking of colleges like our own. So you're talking about things like accreditation. Yes. Well, I mean, I think those are your um, those are your non-negotiables, right? So, in order to have a program that says you're turning out graduates that meet certain criteria and standards to say that they earn that degree, uh, they have to hit those those benchmarks. It's pretty unambiguous in that way. So, is that really a measure of quality or? would you rather think of it as the number or the percentage of your graduates who actually pass your program, your degree, is that the measure of quality? I think that's the discussion at large is how are we defining quality? Is it meeting a set of benchmarks? A lot of people will say it is. I think people who are looking at their bottom line or who are under pressure to adhere to accreditation standards would tell you, yes, this is a quality program as it meets the standards set by name your external agency, who's a driving force in the field. Okay. So you're as an institution, you've earned accreditation. You've proven that you're um, doing whatever it is that you have to do to um, achieve those requirements. What if you only graduate 1% of students from your program? Is it a quality program? That's a great question. Probably not. Unless you only have one student, <laughs> then they have a 100% success rate. But then you're looking at outputs at that point. So it's not only adhering to external accreditation standards, for example, but you're also looking at how well are your students doing in terms of their output. Well, and that could relate back to your college or institutional level, um, your mission and your vision, right? I mean, part of that goal setting might be what are those internal metrics. So we want more than 1% of our students to graduate from our accredited program. What is the threshold? Is it 80%? Is it 90%? And then you start to understand what the quality dimension is there in terms of a number. Mm-hmm. Jessica, do you have a perspective from ASU Online, for example? ASU Online and the rest of ASU are a quality matters institution, which we'll be talking about more in this episode as well. But um, one thing that I would mention is that our use of the 
the quality matter or QM standards in our ASU online courses does emphasize the essential standards in the quality matters program. And from, from an instructional designer perspective, I would say one of the most important factors is the alignment between the learning objectives, the instructional materials, and then, of course, the assessments. Are we measuring students based upon the objectives that were set forth at the start of um, a course, a week, a module? Uh, that's really, really important. Another, another factor in um, quality courses would be student engagement and, of course, their success. Yeah, nice. And you uh, helped us segue into the next dimension of, uh, of of quality that I wanted to look at. And that is from the instructional designer's perspective, all of us in this virtual room either are or have worked as instructional designers for a considerable amount of time. So what are some of our perceptions of, of quality in an online distance education course? I'm going to make a connection between the admin perspective and the instructional design perspective, I feel like the, the administrative part is to build, you know, those kind of bubbles, like uh, Jeanette mentioned, the framework, the rubric, that type, or that part of the quality. But then IDs start to build that alignment to it. It kind of brings down all of those pieces and looks at what all of the content is doing and how everything is connecting to that overall framework of quality that the administrative piece has built out. Like increasing granularity. So the admin level is big picture. And now with your instructional designers, you're starting to, I don't want to say split hairs, but you're starting to look at more at the, the, the finer points, the details and more narrowed focus. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think in many ways I find that we're kind of, our perspective is, is a, a bridge component. We help that it's not just the alignment, but kind of the end-to-end. The -end. You know, there's a institution, there's a program, there's a curriculum, there's a course, there's a final grade. So we can help bridge the various components of that overall process and bring that bigger picture than just an individual assignment in an individual learning management system and to make sure that the buttons work when they're clicked. And when I think about quality assurance or making sure that quality is attended to or how we think about it, you know, it's always, we love our frameworks, our tools, our rubrics, our checklists, whatever systems. And there's so many different combinations of things that we can use to get at that. I think the point is just that you as an instructional designer uh, in alignment <laughs> for circling back around here, the, the movie in the movie is, um, it works with whatever the ultimate goals are of the institution. So I could build up a checklist for myself as a designer that focuses only on uh, document links that work and color palette branding standards are adhered to, uh, whatever, as an individual working in my little silo. But those may not be the important quality standards or they may not be the only important quality standards. So just kind of ensuring that there's some kind of, of uh, connection and that it's not just done in isolation. And there's, there's certainly going to be some work to bring that collaborative focus because some of the work that we, we do there is going to be, you know, in partnership with an instructor, with a program director, um, you know, through the lens of, 
overall program outcomes through to accreditation and things like that. And then I also want to throw out the the user experience, the UX or the LX piece, because although I sort of ironically mentioned documents that work and buttons that are not formatted correctly, that's actually an important dimension of student satisfaction and their quality of experience learning in an online course. So not to uh, imply that the actual experience of navigating through those materials is not important because it is it's very important. One thing that I would add to this, Jeanette mentioned the program level, the course level, um, is also the individual instructor or faculty teaching the course. So we understand that part of the the overall learning experience is going to be the design of the course, but there's also the facilitation piece. And I think this is really important and worth mentioning uh, because the, the student perception is not only on the design of the course and whether quality standards were in mind during that time, but it really is the delivery of the course as well, is the instructor uh, thoughtfully responding in a timely manner and providing meaningful feedback so that the students can succeed. Ooh, Jessica, you're, you're, uh, I think you're foreshadowing where this conversation is going because I do want to talk about the student perspective, uh, but I don't want to hop over one more uh, essential ingredient, and that is our faculty perspective as well. I feel like it was a good segue into the faculty piece of oh, quality because she mentions that instructor presence piece, that delivery. Can the instructor deliver the course or facilitate in a manner that engages and um, provides the student with a feeling of quality? But we can't, as designers, we can't control what the faculty do necessarily. We can encourage, we can prompt, we can promote. I feel like that's where the the instructional designer becomes that bridge. So Jeanette mentioned the bridging. I mentioned, you know, going from admin to instructional design, but then instructional designers are almost that middleman that sits in between all of these pieces, the administration, the um, faculty, the subject matter experts who are usually faculty, but, you know, sometimes it could be a lead, you know, subject matter expert who then is working with other faculty. Um, and even though we don't, you know, necessarily work directly with the students, we look at that student feedback to help us help faculty or help, um, you know, program directors think more about the curriculum or the, the content that's being produced. And I feel like, you know, that piece on the timeliness of um, faculty response to students is a piece where that's where instructional designers have that conversation of, you know, what's in your evaluations? What kind of feedback are you receiving from the student? Let's think about how we can work with that feedback to, you know, make some changes on, you know, this or that. Um, if it's timeliness, maybe, you know, they're getting a lot of feedback on slow response time. So then we have that conversation and we're not directly telling them they have to do this, but we're just encouraging, you know, looking back at that feedback to think about what kind of fixes. Maybe the content is absolutely wonderful. All of the, everything else in the course is quality, but looking back at that student feedback, it, that main component that might be the negative piece is the timeliness. And we, we just kind of encourage 
those conversations to help the faculty focus on what might need improvement. I agree with Celia. Um, I think that coaching our faculty is an important part of being an instructional designer. While we have a say in the design of the course, it's a good idea to communicate some best practices as far as the course delivery. For example, let's say a course is meets all quality standards under the sun, but perhaps that instructor did not set forth a plan for when announcements would be distributed to the students. And for some students, that can really be a deal breaker. They want to hear from the instructor so that they know that they care about the overall experience of the course. And so as an instructional designer myself, that is one piece that that I like to work in with the faculty who I'm supporting is to communicate some of those best practices about the, the student experience and what they can do as far as being, um, being present as an instructor and right down to adding videos that show them on the screen and the pacing of email communications and announcements. All of that goes into the overall experience of the course when we think about the students, but not all of it is necessarily course design. So I do think that that's an important bridging area where IDs can take an active role. No, I agree. It sounds like you're, what you're saying here is that you can meet all the benchmarks for quality, but that doesn't ensure that it's perceived as a quality experience from the student. There's more to it. And I think this is what my, uh, in my monologue I was sort of referencing is that there's like this nebulous concept where quality is something that can be felt and internally recognized, um, even though it may not be uh, adhering, something that adheres to a a strict set of criteria on the the outside. Uh, Jeanette, did you have something you wanted to throw in there? Yeah, I think you've tied together some very important threads. So, this instructional delivery, this facilitation piece is a very important part of quality. And I'm really glad you drew some of the distinction around what it means for quality matters to be a system of instructional design. Um, and that this is an important uh, component and how that relates. Um, and Aaron, <clears throat> and Aaron, I'm glad that you brought in this question around what, what motivates an instructor to for lack of a better term, to care as much about that if it's less of a priority for them or they are just simply not aware of some of those delivery and facilitation techniques that could make a course a more quality learning experience uh, for their students, that that's absolutely something that we can help be a good part of a team in shoring up and preparing for. And it's really important, but I also think there are a couple of other dimensions that, again, this quality framework from OLC they uh, actually bring in some additional components to think about in terms of, you know, faculty perspectives on quality. And it's, um, you know, again, kind of from this larger institutional perspective, but what may matter to them in terms of um, motivation and achieving those benchmarks, are they well supported? Do they have access to the tools and the staff and the training that they need? Are they adequately recognized and compensated for their expertise as an instructor of online education, not just a faculty member teaching the course? And really making sure that that's part of, you know, if you, whatever system you may use to verify or, or, you know, measure whether a course is 
quality, that that loop is closed. So that ideally will feed right back into that internal, uh, you know, motivation and satisfaction that an instructor gets from teaching in this modality and seeing your students succeed. That's a wonderful tie-in to uh, us looking at what is the faculty perspective here? Is it having quality institutional support, for example? Now, uh, can I get a quick check-in here? Who has taught an online course? Raise your hand or say here. I. (laughs) I have. Jessica has. I used to teach synchronously, not asynchronously. Uh, I used to teach synchronously online. So it looks like our our outlier is Celia. I am the lone wolf. I have. <laughs> but you used to be a teacher. Mind, I used to be a classroom teacher. Um, I've put together many many courses with. Um, let me rephrase that. I used to be a classroom teacher, but I've also designed a lot of online courses as a freelance designer. Um, but having actually taught them myself no i haven't done that yet yet (laughs) at some point i'll dive into that well i'm gonna i'm gonna ask uh jessica and jeanette since uh, they've taught online before what as an instructor gives you a perception of quality in your teaching experience Uh, Technical support, I think, is one area where most folks who are teaching online, um, that can really make a big difference in their experience and their confidence in teaching the course. Um, But just a brief comment I wanted to make uh, from, from my experience teaching as well as working with other instructors is that I would say their focus as far as course quality, it seems to come down to the delivery of lectures. And I would be really curious to see what your thoughts are on as well. Um, I just have found a lot of faculty focusing on creating really great lecture videos or slides and and that that to them equates course quality. Ouch. (laughs) That's kind of a painful thing to hear in some ways. Um, you know, in, in sort of understanding the instructional design perspective about learning, not this um, slightly dirty word of just content, make content. <laughs> I get what you're what you're saying there. I don't have an answer for that, frankly. I mean, from the instructional designer perspective, but in a sort of individual response to Aaron's question, for me, part of the challenge is thinking about how to make the implicit parts of teaching and learning a bit more explicit when moving to the online environment. So I do have to think a little bit more thoughtfully about developing instructional materials. So to your point about lectures, sometimes lecture is not the best venue in any circumstance in a classroom or online, but especially important in terms of understanding your learners in an online course, what will best get them from point A to point B and support the process of constructing their knowledge and finding those resources. If it's not a lecture, what is it? Is it a, you know, project that they have to go out and do some of their own research for? Is it a collection of videos or existing materials that you curate in a way that helps them get to that outcome that you're uh, designing for? And then I think the approach to assessment clearly has to be very careful and thoughtful not from an integrity perspective so much as if you have these measurable learning objectives, 
you know, I can think of any number of fun things to do in a classroom where I can observe. I can observe people in an environment, see how they're performing. You know, they're, they're performing a skill or task or, you know, their, their interpersonal communication, which then has to be reconsidered a bit for the online environment to make sure that that's uh, really, truly getting at the outcome that we're trying to, you know, measure. And then lastly, that interpersonal connection, you have to work harder for it. I think it's absolutely true. You have to work harder to get to know your students, to make them feel like you know them, that you support them, that you actually care about them, and to similarly not bombard them with so much templated email that it becomes noise and they tune you out entirely. So from my perspective, those are kind of the challenges, the barriers to quality. Well, I guess we can move into the student perspective now, since uh, that was a, a great transition from the, uh, the, the faculty point of view uh, and how it might come across to the learner, who is really the, the central key to all of this. We, we do all of this because the learner is our uh, client, so to speak. They're our customer. And uh, we're trying to make sure that they walk away with something of quality and value. I'm not a student anymore. <laughs> but I, I used to be at one time. I'm not a student anymore. So I want to go ahead and reference an article that uh, our guest today, Jessica Cole, shared with me. It's titled Student Perceptions of the Impact of Quality Matters, Certified Online Courses on Their Learning and Engagement by Aisha Sadoff and Florence Martin. The article examines the student perceptions of QM certified courses. So we're talking about val uh, quality. I'm sorry, we're talking about quality. So I think quality assurance is uh, a natural tangent for us to move towards here. Um, this article examines the student perceptions of quality matters certified courses on student learning and engagement. And I found it interesting that students rated, for example, course activities and learner interaction to have the highest impact on both student learning and engagement. Uh, clear expectations was also regarded very highly. So did any of you have a chance to read this article and do you have any thoughts on it? Um, yes. In reading this article, one of the things that I found interesting was the mention of learning objectives, which I think there's a perception that students don't necessarily care whether or not they're presented with learning objectives before they begin studying. But what the research shows is that when learning objectives are used in courses, the result is that the instructors use their time more efficiently and this improves the learning outcomes. Um, that was very fascinating and it does align with an observation we've made in our ASU online courses is that oftentimes the courses that students are struggling in, we take a closer look and what we see is there are not measurable learning objectives. So it may well be that the students don't don't think upfront that they care about reading what the learning objectives are, but it's really important for the, for the instructor in their planning process to carve out and prioritize what needs to be presented so that students can, can succeed in the course and go forward. So clearly stated measurable learning objectives are crucial. It really matters. I feel like it, it's, probably because it it puts it at the forefront it it serves almost as a reminder for what it is that they're needing to focus on for that you know topic or that um 
that class time. It reminds me of like a daily affirmation almost like you're presenting your focus for the day. Like what is it that you want to work on? And I feel like that's what those, you know, having those outcomes um, presented in a way that shows not only the students, but the faculty. It serves as a reminder. This is what we're focusing on. So when you're doing your lectures or you're putting your content together, this is what all of it should be going back to. Yes. So it's crucial. It's something that we're beaten over the head with as instructional designers every day is, you know, make sure your assessments align with the objectives. Make sure your objectives are clearly stated with the action verb at the beginning and make sure all of that aligns with the program objectives and so on. Uh, So no big surprise there, but it's nice to get that confirmation. So according to the students surveyed, learner support was actually the lowest scoring criteria in terms of perceived impact on learning and engagement. And learner support is something that as instructional designers, we take very seriously. The students know how to get the support they need uh, for technical issues, uh, accessibility issues, and so on. And for me, that was always a symbol of quality. Does this course have the support readily available for the students? Yet it was ranked as one of the lowest factors in determining their uh, learning and engagement. I feel like it's one of those things where if the student needs it, they'll seek it. I feel like, does that make a quality course? Like, does it make a course successful? And yes, as an instructional designer, I would say yes. But in thinking about the student perspective and feeling like whether they care to know that every course they sit in has a link to their their support system, whereas you know, most likely they have a lot of areas they can go to in their outside of the course itself. Yeah, I take it these students never needed that uh, support and then couldn't get it because the moment you need it and can't access it, then it becomes paramount. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, and when, you know, thinking about like, let's say accessibility, um, you know, accommodations and things like that, they already have a support system that they're most likely using outside of the course that, you know, to where they don't need to go into a course necessarily to find the support. So I can, I can kind of see that from the student side, you know, where they wouldn't rank that as high when thinking about the course itself, independently of everything else. It's, it's interesting because uh, you and I, for example, uh, particularly you, but when we were designing our Edson template a few years ago, we put a lot of time into the, the learner support portion of it, right? M- making the, the, the HTML design accessible and easily uh, readable and making sure all the details were there. We put a lot of time into that. Uh, you put a lot of time into that. And it's interesting to me that from the student perspective, Meh, but from the ID perspective, it was a big deal. So I think this just goes to reinforce how the perceptions of quality change depending on who the stakeholder is. It's a good example. And I think too, a little bit, it's like, it's the airbag, right? They want to know that it's there and it'll work and it'll be there to catch them if they need it. But for perhaps a certain saturation of students, they're not inherently going around thinking about the quality of their support services to their overall experience of a course. So I think that's a very kind of important distinction. Like, yes, learner services are important, but maybe they're doing it right on their own. They've already built up their own sort of framework for getting the help that they need. 
And again, it sort of recedes the background. And ideally, if a course is working well, some of that should be transparent, I would argue. It shouldn't necessarily be something that students need to think about it as much um, until and unless perhaps something breaks. And then they know, again, they have that airbag. It might also be that that students don't think about the support as much once they've completed their first course, right? So as they proceed in their academic journey, they're already familiar with where they would need to go if they needed something. So maybe then it falls off of the radar and isn't quite as important. But one of the things um, mentioned in this article that previous research found also is that one of the most important things for students is that it's really clear how they get started in in the course and that they're able to find the various components of the course that they need, one of which could be the the learner support area. Um, But wayfinding in general is one of the most important pieces of the online experience. I'm so glad that came up because I was thinking about this a little bit earlier and I was like, what if? Again, hate to always bring this back to the classroom analogy, but I'm like, what if you had a group of students who walked into a classroom and they couldn't find the chairs to sit in, okay? Or they didn't know whether or not they were allowed to talk to their peers or how to talk to their peers sitting across the table from them. How disorienting would that be? It is nearly a similar situation, especially for sort of novice online learners. Maybe they're not familiar as much with the platform and just generally comfortable yet, it it can be extremely difficult if they just simply don't know how to work in that environment. That's very true. And not just even in a classroom. I mean, think about, let's say like um, attending a conference or attending a workshop or anything like that. One of the first things that's provided is the instructions for how to get started. You know, come in, sit down, um, put your name on a piece of paper, put, you know, or a sticker, tell, tell us who you are you know, things that get them started and ready. And sometimes, you know, that's forgotten about when uh, when um, moving something online because you, you feel like it's already known, yet it isn't. You still need to provide that, you know, um, that structure for them. And the first impressions are going to color everything that comes after that. All right, so we've talked about the admin perspective, the instructional designer perspective, faculty and student perspectives. I want to go big picture again and look at the international perspective of quality in online distance education. So a few years back, I picked up a very interesting book called Culture and Online Learning, Global Perspectives and Research. I want to talk in particular about chapter nine titled Diversity and Expectations of Quality and Assessments. Here, the authors look at the expectations of quality in online education from three different cultural contexts, Asian, European, and American. Have any of you read this book? I didn't think so. (laughs) I'm not familiar with this one. (laughs) I I, I totally expected that answer. So I'm going to give you a pop quiz. I'm going to ask a question and I want you three to guess if I'm talking about the Asian, European, or American context. Okay. All right. Question one, which group prefers well-structured course materials that follow clear development guidelines? I'm going to go with European. Okay. European. I'm going to say Asian. I was thinking Asian Asian as well. Okay. 
Well, Jeanette and Jessica are correct. It is Asian. And I'm going to quote from the book. This may indicate that a majority of Asian learners perceive distance education as a form of independent study and therefore value clearly organized course content with easy to follow directions. The book goes on or the authors go on to further explain that Confucian inspired cultures are examination focused and therefore Asian learners focus on outputs rather than process. So for them, quality means well-structured, easily accessible course materials. Question number two. This region's higher educational institutions are critical of innovative teaching and learning approaches. European? No, I'm with European this time. European for me also. That is correct. It is European, which is funny because I think one of the first online distance education programs in the world came out of Europe. But from what I gather in the book, they seem to be much more process-oriented than the Asian learners, and it was the interaction with the instructor and the students that was uh, important for them. Okay, last question. I'm sure you know the answer already, but I'm going to say it anyways. Online instructors of this region perceive high-quality administrative, technological, and instructional support as an important quality factor of online learning. USA. <laughs> American. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I should say, when we say American cultural context, I'm pretty sure the book is mostly focused on uh, the United States. But that is correct. And I think it's interesting that if you rewind this podcast to, I don't know, what, 10, 15 minutes ago, we were just talking about when we were teaching online that we found the support, administrative support to be crucial. I know Jeanette had mentioned it at one point as well. So we're falling right in line with the uh, survey results. Jeanette didn't disagree with that, so I'm going to assume I remember correctly. <laughs> fascinating. All right. It's fascinating to confront uh, our own like perceptions and, and bias around you know yeah. what we think we know here. So yeah, it's great. I'm glad you asked those questions. I, Can I just say oh, I yeah. flipped mm-hmm. European or well, okay. So when I first went through this, my first thought was Asian on the well-structured, mm-hmm. but it was a quiz, and I thought, oh, is he tricking us? I'm going to flip European and Asian. Well, and no, that's a good point. For me, very well. I'm pretty sure all groups prefer well-structured course materials that follow clear de- development guidelines. <laughs> so before we move into the hot topics, it's worth noting that senior instructional designer Penny Ralstenberg has been doing a deep dive into the topic of student perceptions of quality and online courses since at least 2008. And both of the resources mentioned in today's episode cite her work and research. So definitely worth a read if you are interested in learning more. And now, Hot Topics. Hot Topics. All right, today's Hot Topic is a tweet from a loyal IBD listener, And I apologize if I mispronounce the name, Micah Leisenfeld. Micah tweets to us, episode theme wish, how to organize content provided by Schmees to create a curriculum. Sometimes you get trickles, but sometimes it's an info dump that includes everything but the kitchen sink. Tips for organizing and recycling legacy content, exclamation mark, smiley face. Before we get into it, can I just say I like how you pronounce SMEs or subject matter experts? 
as Shmi's because it takes me to Peter Pan and Hook and Shmi. So just no yeah. appreciation, Aaron. I never made that. that connection before, but I see it. <laughs> so it took me back to circa 2002, 2003. And at the time I was working in an administrative assistant job role and an instructor walked into my my office, my workspace, dropped a box on my desk that was full of paper research articles about online education and developing online courses and said, I need you to organize this into categories that other instructors can use and read and figure out how to build and deliver an online course. And mind you, this was not an area of study that I had ever undertaken. I knew very little at the time about this idea of instructional design or, or even higher education curriculum at all. Mm-hmm. And here I was faced with mountains, like a mountains of completely random articles on the topic. And again, 2002, 2003. So I started to look for keywords. I literally had to think through this in terms of buckets. And I think if I were in a similar situation digitally like this, I might start by looking at those broader thematic buckets, if nothing else. If you receive a large amount of information that you don't already have anchored to a curriculum or an overall um, set of course objectives, if you're flying completely blind and you receive a ton of content, I start looking for themes and sorting them into piles. Chunking. We're breaking it down. Yeah, absolutely. Another form of that, I would say, is when you don't have enough. So like, for example, over the summer, I was um, doing some freelance design work for some places that needed to quickly move online. But they were taking new ideas online that hadn't been previously done even in a classroom. It was more uh, after school material. So this was taking some um, VR education materials into an online course format. And what they had was made for, you know, face-to-face instruction, but not formal, you know, classroom instruction. This was after-school program. Let's, you know, get the components and play type of thing. So taking that and having to, you know, reverse it into we need all of these, you know, pieces to make it a quality course then it became pulling out those pieces. Um, But basically pulling out the the components that are needed and getting the instructor to see, you know, what are the elements that we need to to, um, develop in order to get to that final goal. Well, the thing I think that uh, Celia and Janice's example share is that it, it sounds like your subject matter expert does have a vision, even if it's not necessarily clear in their own head, or maybe it is. Uh, And so our job is to sort of help to recreate that in a way that is also friendly for learning and also fits the platform that we're moving it towards. If it's a virtual platform, for example, I always said consulting should be a part of the instructional design master's degree. We should have a course on how to consult with people, pull out that information. Yeah. I mean, interpersonal communication and managing sort of ambiguity is a very important skill. I mean, I think too, another sort of practical tip that I've used with some um, subject matter experts in the past is it's go very much low tech. I posed the question to them if they knew nothing about the topic or the content that they were responsible for developing, 
how would they like to learn it? How would they feel it reasonable to break it down into chunks or categories or modules or units or whatever? And then ask them to literally write it as they would a fifth grade book report outline, a draft. You know, give me nice. an ABC and a one, two, three, because if you can take it down to that simplistic of a level, then you've already given yourself a roadmap to follow. Mm-hmm. I like that with outlining. Can I move to the recycling legacy content? Oh, I, sorry. The last, yeah, uh, Micah's last uh, sentence here is tips for organizing and recycling legacy content. So, what are your tips? This is where I feel like master course shells come into great use because it's a great place for recycling to happen so that you can begin to move pieces around what ne- what's needed and what's not needed and then pull the needed over to the new courses. Nice. I like that. Uh, so in my experience, I've only had one course that was just a complete info dump at the beginning. And then I had to make sense of all of it quickly and then get it out there uh, in, in a digital format. Um, so what I did was I established probably the most outer layer of the onion, which is how do you want the students to progress through your course? As in, are we going to start with our lecture, go to readings, and then have our assessment? And then if we have assessments, what are they? Is it a quick quiz at the end? Is it a discussion? Uh, luckily, that portion was actually quite uh, easy and automated. The instructor wanted to basically present the material, provide supplemental resources, and then do a quick quiz, a self-check basically, and then rinse and repeat. So once I had that structure down, which had really very little to do with the content other than it was a structure that that aligned with the, with the content, uh, then we looked into how to chunk the content appropriately so you're managing cognitive load. We ended up finding ways to to arrange the content so it wasn't a tedious scroll one way or the other, so the, everything was laid out um, in a manageable way so the students weren't getting overburdened. I helped to give uh, headers. Like I, I, you know, I, I think this goes back to what both Jeanette and Silver were saying is you're chunking the content by themes, right? So you find out or, uh, this section is about such and such, and then you give it a header of such and such. And then the instructor was like, oh, I see what you're doing. And then they started going through and, and providing headers every couple of paragraphs telling the students this next section is about whatever. But from the outside in, we were able to create a learning experience that I think was rather well-received. I hope it was. Uh, and uh, I know it was definitely for me an adventure in managing a huge info dump into a palatable, palatable learning experience. That's a good point that sometimes it's really about finding the right template. And that is kind of the, it becomes the, the guiding uh, way. It becomes the map through making sense of a lot of disparate elements. So yeah, it's another really good key strategy. In this case, and every situation is probably different, but uh, that's what worked this time. Well, I'd like to thank Celia Kutwaitiwa, Jeanette Senecal, and our special guest, Jessica Cole, for bravely tackling the broad and multifaceted concept of quality and how it is perceived for online distance learning in higher ed. If you, our audience, would like to share your thoughts, insights, and opinions about quality, then please reach out to us on Twitter or by email. 
You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Going to the um, McTeegan-Wiggins backwards design model, you know, we have our end Sorry, I lost where I was going. But basically, um, the same thing. McTeegan Wiggles. Is it? <laughs> it's McTeegan Wiggins, right? Oh, okay. Wiggins and McTeegan. Now, now all I can see in my head is the Wiggles. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>